So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn to Romans chapter 16. Uh, We're towards the end of our study. Uh, We're in our second week of this particular chapter. Uh, The first week in chapter 16, we just looked at a couple of verses. We looked at Phoebe, who is a servant or a diaconos of the church at Centria. And now we move into the second part of chapter 16, verses 3 through 16, which is Paul's greeting to a lot of individuals and families and house churches that he knows by name in Rome. And we'll see that there are some additional greetings later in this chapter, in verses 21 through 23, but those are people who are with Paul as he's writing this letter. They're with Paul in Corinth, and they want to extend their greetings to the folks in Rome as well. But what we have in verses 3 through 16 this morning is Paul's personal greetings to individuals, to families, to married couples, and to house churches there in Rome. He greets 27 people by name and many, many others by extension, as we'll see. Nine women, 18 men, including three families, three house churches, um, three married couples, one mom and her son, one brother and her sister. Now, it's typical for Paul in his writings towards the end of his letters to include some sort of greeting, but usually it's very general in nature. Typically, it's something like, greet the brothers and sisters in Christ who are with you. Um, In some of his letters, he does include some personal greetings, and he lists some people by name, but nowhere in all of his writings does he come close to the sheer volume of personal greetings that we find here at the end of Romans. You know, often we skip over passages like this. Right? We, we see a list of names and we just kind of skip over them when we're reading the Bible or in our, in our devotion time, we're having our quiet time. We get to the begats, for example, in the Old Testament, so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and here are their list of 27 heirs and, and, and folks, and we just kind of skip over them, but we do so at our own loss because embedded in what appears to be a, just a, a list of names here is a window into the heart of the Apostle Paul. And a window into the heart of those that he wants his readers to go and greet for him. And through this window into their hearts, we see genuine love. We see displays of genuine love and devotion and sincere affection between brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that ought to have a bearing on our relationships with one another in the body of Christ today. So let's read Romans chapter 16, verses 3 through 16. Church, this is the word of God. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristopulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian, 
Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trufana and Trufosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me also. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet philologist Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful to hold this book in our hands and know with confidence that these are the very breath of God. Because that is what this is, we pray, Father, that you would attend the reading of your word by your Holy Spirit to give us understanding. And Lord, that this would um, be applicable to our lives, Lord, in some way. That we are equipped and edified uh, to bring you glory as a church. Would you uh, mature our faith together in Christ this morning? Would you enlarge our affection for one another in such a way that it is a believable apologetic for the gospel, that we grow in our love for one another in a way that the world does not know, and that our affection and devotion to one another would equip us and prepare us for the great commission task ahead of us. So we ask that you do work this morning, even in a passage like this, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, As we start, a couple of overarching consideration that I want us to keep in mind before we begin to look at some of the particular relationships here. Two things that we need to see and keep in mind as we look at each of these relationships. And the first is that we need to see this command to greet. In my copy of the scriptures, this English standard version passage that I'm looking at here, I count 17 different times where I see that verb. 17 times in just uh, 14 verses. And in each of those occurrences, it's a command. You go back to the Greek, it is an imperative verb form, aspazomai, greet. Now, this is a command, but it's not a command that we can obey, is it? We can't greet Prisca and Aquila or the church and their house or Mary or Epinetus or any of these folks that are listed here. We, we can't obey, this is one of those commands that we simply can't obey because obviously they're not around for us to greet them. So how are we to apply a passage like this? I think furthermore, a rigid, rigid application of a passage like this is unnecessary and unhelpful. So I don't think God intends for us to just simply start talking differently about our brothers and sisters in Christ or, or writing about them differently, that we would simply encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ to greet our other brothers and sisters in Christ and the Lord. And I think you'll be delighted to know that neither do I think we should resume the practice of greeting one another with a holy kiss. I do think that's culturally defined and not something that translates very well into our culture. And so rest at ease about that. But why, why did God include a passage of scripture like this in the Bible? Why is it recorded for us in the, in the canon of scripture and, and, and such that it would be preserved for us to read today? and apply today? That's really the question that we need to unpack 
if we're to know how to apply a passage like this. Now, in the cultural context of Paul's day, his original intended audience, their application was quite literal. He wanted them to greet these people in the Lord, to literally extend to them his greeting and his love, and to greet them with a holy kiss. But why did the Lord allow this passage to be recorded for us today? What is it that he wants us to learn from this, to bring edification to our own walk with Christ and to edification to our church, that, that, that we might glorify God more as a church through what is here? I think the answer to this question, again, is that we get this window into the heart of one believer, the Apostle Paul, and how he felt about all these other believers and why he felt that way about them and how that impacted him and how it affected his life. And I believe that we're to consider in reflection the condition of our own heart and how we love or don't love our brothers and sisters in Christ in this same way. And so it's my prayer that each of us, as we look at these relationships, myself included, that God would use these examples to, in fact, enlarge our heart for one another, that we might love one another with a sincere and deep affection that mirrors what we see in the Apostle Paul here, truly, deeply, and sacrificially loving one another. And by the way, that's the other thing that is an overarching consideration here, and that is that we need to see not only the command degree, but we need to see the love that's permeating throughout this entire chapter. We need to see the love that's all throughout here. After all, that's exactly what Paul once delivered on his behalf to these people that he mentions. When he tells them to greet these folks, he doesn't just want them to tell them hi for, for Paul. He wants them to take his love and give it to them. And perhaps that's how, how we should really understand this. Today we might say, give so-and-so my love. What do we mean by that when we say that? What we mean is, when you see them, love them for me. Because I, I can't. I'm here, and they're there. So when you go to them, love them for me. Embrace them. Hug them. Greet them with a holy kiss. But I'm separated them from them for now, and so I can't. And so embrace them and love them for me. So it's not just simply... Um, Hey, Priscilla and Achilla, Paul says hi. But Priscilla and Achilla, when you see them, embrace them, take them to you, kiss them. In fact, that's what the word greeting means. The word itself means to take someone to yourself and, and embrace them. So Paul wants them to, to take them to himself, embrace them, perhaps kiss them tenderly on the cheek and say, Paul desperately wanted to be here to give you his love himself, but he can't. And so he, he asked if I would do this for him. Paul deeply and genuinely loves you. Examples of this throughout this passage are all the times he talks about my beloved. In verse 5, my beloved Eponatus. In verse 8, my beloved in the Lord Ampliatus. In verse 9, my beloved Stachus. In verse 12, greet the beloved Persis. But, but additionally, we see the language of love oozing out all throughout this chapter. When he talks about Priscilla and Achilla, he says they risked their necks for my life. When he mentions Andronicus and Junia, Junia, he says that they are his kinsmen and his fellow, fellow prisoners. 
And then he talks about Rufus's mother and says, she was a mother to me as well. This is the language of love, and we, we need to see this in Paul's heart and, and then ask ourselves, do, do I talk like that about my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Is my heart, is your heart, so overflowing with genuine love and affection for my brothers and sisters in Christ that my speech is saturated by not plastic, but genuine expressions of deep affection and gratefulness. And if not, why not, right? So those are the two overarching observations that I want us to keep in mind here. Number one, see the command to greet. And here in that command, Paul's desire for his love to be extended to his dear and precious friends. And then secondly, see that love all throughout here. And ask ourselves, is my heart overflowing with with a similar kind of deep affection for my brothers and sisters in Christ, so much so that it comes out in even my speech? Now, the remainder of our time, I want us to consider why Paul mentions these people in particular. What, What is it about them in particular that causes Paul to single them out for greeting? What was it about them that so endeared them to Paul? And I think this is important for us to consider because Paul could have just done what he, he could have just done what he does in most of his other letters. Greet the brothers and sisters in Christ who are with you. But he doesn't. He names individuals. And he goes beyond just naming individuals. In many of the cases here, he he tells us something about their story. Now, some of them we don't know anything about. He doesn't mention anything about their story, and they're not listed anywhere else in Scripture, and so we don't know. But to the degree that we can piece together a story about who they are, it will give us an indication of why they were so dear to Paul. And and this is instructive to us today in this room because there are people in our lives who fit these categories for us as well. And church, many of them are in this very room. And, and to the degree that the, the, the story that, that, that we see between Paul and these people matches the story that we have between one another and the body of Christ here at New Branch, will grow our love for one another, enlarge our hearts for one another, so that, not, not just so that we love each other more, but so that our love will be an apologetic to the gospel. So that our love for one another will point to a Jesus who has transformed us radically. And so that we will be equipped and ready and prepared for the mission that God has for us. Just like this prepared them and drew them together to be ready for the mission that they had in first century Rome. To take the gospel to the nations. I pray that that would be the same effect for us today and for me. So what was it about these people that made them... So precious to Paul. Four things, four answers to that question. Number one, they shared a partnership in ministry. All throughout this chapter, Paul introduces us to fellow workers. He calls them workers in the Lord, workers in Christ Jesus. These are people who are working, not just at their job, but they were working on gospel ministry. They weren't paid that way. They were all bivocational. They they didn't get paid through the gospel ministry, but they all were serving Jesus alongside Paul and alongside one another. In verse 6, 
He talks about Mary, and, and, and Mary is said to have worked hard for those who are in Rome. Many Bible scholars believe that she was one of the first Christian missionaries. More than likely single, because a husband is not mentioned here with her. Probably single, like Phoebe was, the servant or the deaconess from Centria, a missionary in the church. In verse 9, Urbanus is a fellow worker in Christ. At the end of verse 12, Persis is noted as one who has worked hard in the Lord. He notes not just that they're workers, but they worked hard in the ministry. And in verses 3 through 5, at the, at the beginning of our passage, we're told about this married couple, Prisca and Achilla, that they are fellow workers in the Lord. And he also sends greetings to the church and their house. So they were church planters. E- each of these as well as presumably the rest of these that are listed, were partners with Paul in gospel ministry, and they worked together for the Lord and for the kingdom. But I want us to take a little bit deeper look at Aquila and Prisca in particular. Two reasons. One, um, Paul devotes almost three verses to them in this passage, much more than anyone else, but also because we read vastly more about Priscilla and Aquila in the rest of the New Testament than any of the others. We first run into them in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18. Let me read verses 1 through 3. Dr. Luke says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently coming from Italy with his wife Priscilla, which is Prisca, uh, Dr. Luke just calls her by her real name, and and, uh, Paul calls her by, I guess, a nickname, Prisca. It's the same lady. Um, And they recently left Italy because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And so Paul went to see them, verse 3, and because he he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul's in Corinth here. And he meets Aquila and Prisca. And we're told that they're from Pontus. They're natives of Pontus, which is way up in what's now northern Turkey, almost on the, on the southern shore of the Black Sea, way up north. And they move down. We're told that they move from Pontus, and they move down to Rome. Dr. Luke tells us that they're in Rome. But then Emperor Claudius, about A.D. 59, he expels all the Jews from Rome, kicks them out. And so they go to Corinth now. And they meet up with the Apostle Paul in Corinth, and they begin to do ministry together in Corinth. They were already believers at this time, and they worked alongside uh, the Apostle Paul there while he was in Corinth. So they were some of the first Christian missionaries, but they weren't vocational missionaries. They were tent makers. Literally, they were, they were tent makers along with the Apostle Paul. And they were married, which is highly unusual at the time, to just uproot themselves like that and move again and again and again. About a year and a half later, after serving alongside Paul in Corinth, they, they leave Corinth with Paul, and they move now to Ephesus. And while they're in Ephesus... They plant a church, and the church meets in their home. We're told about this at the end of Paul's letter to Corinth uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. At the end of that letter where he's sending his greetings to that church, he says this. He says, the churches of Asia, meaning the area around Ephesus, 
The churches in Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So they were church planters in Ephesus. But the story doesn't stop there because now we fast forward to Romans chapter 16, which Paul writes while he's in Corinth later. And now Aquila and Prisca are there in Rome. And now there's another church in their home. So that now they've planted a church in Rome as well. And then the last time we hear of them is in 2 Timothy, which, by the way, is written 10 years, some 10 years after the letter to the Romans is written. And Paul writes the letter to 2 Timothy, the, the letter to Timothy, his second one, while he's in prison in Rome. And as he writes that letter to Timothy, who, by the way, is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, he says, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. So now they're back in Ephesus again. So they start out in Pontus. They move to Rome. They pack up and move to Corinth. They meet and worship with Paul there. They go back to Rome and they plant a church there. They come back to Ephesus and they plant a church there. Back and forth, back and forth. This is not a life of leisure. This is not a couple who is out for simply comfort in life. What we have in Aquila and Prisca is a married couple who, they seem to always put a blank check before the Lord and seem to always be willing to go anywhere and do anything for Jesus. And not vocationally, but certainly wholeheartedly. In fact, Paul says in verse 4, they risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. That's a pretty incredible statement to be said about a couple, isn't it? All the churches of the Gentiles give thanks to them. Give thanks to this couple who radically followed Jesus Christ together. We don't know that they had kids, but they probably had kids uprooted their lives, served them as missionaries and church planters all over the known Roman Empire. And so Paul thinks of them as he's closing out this letter and he says, oh man, give them my love. Give them my love. They are dear to me. They are precious to me. Church, those with whom we have the privilege of serving alongside in ministry are dear to us. And the harder we work in ministry, and the harder they work in ministry, the more precious they become to us, and the more precious we become to them. In other words, our love for one another grows the more we engage in gospel ministry together. Partners in ministry are those who put their hands to the plow alongside us and till the soil of ministry with us. And they are precious to us. For Paul, it was Prisca and Aquila and Mary and Urbanus and Persis and Andronicus and Juna and Junia and over and over and over. For me, it's people like David and Bodie and Chris and the other Chris and the other David and Jacob, and Will, and Meatloaf, and Christy, and Lori, and Reagan. I could go on and on. Steve and Jenny, 
Chris and Dana. Who are your partners in ministry? With whom do you work alongside? Let me exhort you, work, work hard together and watch your affection for one another grow as you do. And if you don't have any partners in ministry, I think the first thing to do is to look and see if your own hand is on the plow yourself. And if it's not, put it there and start serving Start engaging in ministry, and God will bring partners in ministry to you. But some of these folks that are listed in this passage are more than partners in ministry. They're partners in suffering. So that's the, that's the second reason that I see in this passage for why these people are so dear to Paul and why he singles them out for greeting. Prisca and Aquila, we mentioned that Paul says, they risk their necks for my life. We don't know what that situation was. We don't know what happened. But at some point, they put their necks on the line. They, they put their heads on the proverbial chopping block in order to save Paul's life. And that's the kind of sacrifice that engenders lifelong devotion and affection. Like the writer of Proverbs says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Andronicus and Junia, down in verse 7, they're another married couple. And Paul says, they're not just my kinsmen, they're my fellow prisoners. They too were missionaries, proclaimers of the gospel like the Apostle Paul there in Rome. And at some point, they were imprisoned with the Apostle Paul. And shackled next to the apostle in a dungeon cell, an affection, a deep and real and genuine affection was forged between them. You know, in in 2019 in America, we don't really know what it's like to suffer for our faith. But perhaps we will someday soon. I'm no prophet but it certainly seems as though our, our culture is growing more and more secular and less and less tolerant of a biblical gospel and a biblical Christianity. We see in many facets of our culture defining biblical positions is now hate speech. So who knows, maybe one day we will know what it means to suffer physically and to endure physical persecution for our faith. But not all suffering is because of persecution. Sometimes it's just going through hard times together and suffering with the reality of life in a fallen world. It's walking with a sister through a time of cancer. It's walking alongside a couple um, during a time of infertility. It's encouraging a brother when he's battling depression. This partnership in one another's suffering forges a bond of affection that will last a lifetime. Personally, I remember some of the darkest days of my life as a pastor. Um, And there is this small handful of men that I allowed into that place We're talking times where I felt like hanging it up, walking away. It's just too hard. It's too much pain. And there's a 
small handful of men who walked alongside me and encouraged me and read the scriptures to me and prayed for me. And they are dear to me to this very day. And they always will be. Are you willing to walk through suffering with your brothers and sisters in Christ? And if you're the one who is suffering, are you willing for others to walk alongside you? Paul was. Paul experienced that. And he considered those saints to be among his dearest friends in life. Thirdly, Paul was endeared to these folks because of their partnership in a church. We, we see, I believe, at least three churches, possibly four churches mentioned in this passage. First of all, obviously, there's the church that is greeted by name that meets in Prisca and Achilles' house. That's the only church that's explicitly mentioned here, but Bible scholars see at least two others, possibly three others. If you look down at verse 14, he tells them to greet this list of people. He says, greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, and Hermas. We don't know anything about, about those folks. There's nothing mentioned about them any, anywhere else in Scripture. But then Paul follows that up with this phrase, and the brothers who are with them. So presumably, more than likely, in referring to the brothers here who are with these other folks, this is another church, another house church in Rome. Look at the very next verse, verse 15. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus. And again, we don't know anything about those folks aside from their list here. But then Paul says, and all the saints who are with them. So that's the third house church. And then some Bible scholars look at verse 10 and, and see where Paul refers to those who belong to the family of Aristopolis, and that that may have been a fourth house church. But the point here is that the apostle Paul loved the bride of Christ. He loved the local church. And he had an affection for those who gathered together in these small house churches. And he wanted his love to be given to them, even though he didn't know their name. He just calls them the saints that are there, the, the brothers that are there. The church that meets in their house. And I would suggest to you that we too should have a growing affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are worshiping and serving the Lord in other like-minded Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, gospel-proclaiming churches. And oh, that God would cause more of those to spring up around us, that our hearts would grow in affection for each of the saints in those churches as well. But then finally, Paul Love these people. These people were dear and precious to him primarily because of their partnership in Christ. The phrase in Christ or in the Lord is repeated 10 times in this passage. In verse 3, he says that Aquila and Aprisca are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. In verse 5, he talks about Epinetus being the first convert to Christ in Asia. Which, by the way, tells us that he had, he had a, a deep appreciation and respect for those who had walked in Jesus longer than he did. Those seasoned saints who had loved and walked and served Jesus longer than he had. <clears throat> that continues in verse 7. He says, And Jonicus and Junia were in Christ before me. But the point is that Epinetus and Andronicus and Junia were in Christ. 
In verse 8, he says, greet Ampliatus, my beloved, in the Lord. Verse 9, Urbanus, he's my fellow worker in Christ. Verse 10, Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Verse 11, greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Trufena and Trufosa. Verse 13, Persis, she worked hard in the Lord. And then verse 14, Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Which, by the way, why, why does he single out Rufus? as being chosen in the Lord. Weren't they all chosen in the Lord? Elected by sovereign grace for his, according to his good pleasure, as Paul talked about in Romans chapter 9. Yes, of course they were. They were all chosen in the Lord. So why does he single out Rufus here as chosen in the Lord? We don't know. It doesn't say. But I like to think it's because Rufus was a notorious sinner. And that he experienced a radical transformation like the Apostle Paul, who was transformed from a persecutor of Christ to a proclaimer of Christ, an apostle of Christ. And I like to think that Rufus had a similar transformation. And then when Paul looked at him, he said, no other way but the grace of God. Chosen in the Lord, Rufus. The point here is 10 different times that phrase, in the Lord, in Christ, is repeated in this short passage. 11, if you include his exhortation in verse 2, to welcome Phoebe in the Lord. So this isn't just about Paul saying hi to his friends. And it's not just about him sending along his love in a letter. There's more than that. The way that Paul talks about his friends here reveals that he is acutely aware of and supremely grateful for the wrath-satisfying work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. Paul had a very keen awareness of his own depravity, as we see in this letter and his other letters. He had a very keen awareness of the hopelessness the hopeless condition of lostness, both for he and for his dear friends. That they both, he and they, deserve the wrath of God because of their sin. But that now in Christ, now they had been rescued from that. And this keen awareness of rescue and redemption forged a deep well of affection between them like soldiers who fought and bled together in battle, there is an affection for one another that lasts a lifetime. We, we remember the stories from nine, ten years ago when that uh, Chilean, that mine in Chile collapsed and the miners were trapped underground and their way of escape was cut off caved in, seemingly hopeless of rescue. And we remember the pictures and the video clips that went viral on social media days later, weeks later, however long it was. It was a while. When they were rescued and they hugged one another, they embraced one another, they sang songs, they high-fived, and they celebrated their rescue together. In the same manner, Paul's speech here reveals that he and his friends shared a deeply desperate condition. 
a hopeless condition. They were both trapped under the guilt of their own sin, surrounded by the weight of God's wrath because of their sin. And yet, now they share in the sheer joy of their mutual rescue. And it is a shared experience that has forged a deep and genuine affection for one another. And church, I think this is how we ought to see one another in this room. In the same way, we were in the pit. You and I and, and all of us, we were, we were in from rescue, hopeless. We were trapped under the guilt of our sin. We were surrounded by the weight of God's wrath against us for our sin. And it was hopeless. And we deserved judgment, and we deserved fire, and we deserved eternal punishment. And that was what we were about to experience. But the grace of God lifted us from that pit and set our feet collectively on solid ground. We have been saved, church. We have been rescued together. We have been redeemed together. You, me, all of us whom God has saved by grace through faith. We're no longer down in the mine. We're no longer down in that pit. We have been rescued together. How could we not embrace one another? How could we not look at one another and not grow in our affection for one another? How could we not consider one another to be precious and dear to us as we see one another as graciously rescued by the Lord from that same pit that we were all in? You know what? When we think of it in that way, I think, I think that makes that culturally awkward exhortation in verse 16 make a little bit more sense to us. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Yes, I think that is culturally defined. And no, I don't think that is binding on all believers in every culture and every time period. But church, the kind of holy, pure Love and affection, the intensity of that love and affection that we see in the Apostle Paul for his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who were similarly likewise saved from the pit, rescued from certain and deserved judgment. That intensity of love and affection demands some kind of demonstrative display. So whatever the cultural equivalence is for us today, Maybe it's not a holy kiss. Maybe it's an embrace. Maybe it's a hug. Maybe it's a high five. Maybe it's a handshake. I don't know. If we don't have one, maybe we should go back and use this one. But whatever it is, it should fit with the reality of the situation. We've been rescued together. And when we see one another, we ought to be so overwhelmed with affection for one another and affection for Christ, the the, the one who rescued us, that we've got to display it somehow. So parenthetically, brothers, don't be afraid to hug other brothers and mean it. Like really mean it. Mean it as if we were all sinking on the Titanic and we were plucked out and set on dry land because we have been together. Sisters, don't be afraid to 
embrace one another in the Lord. I know we have to work through the issues of men and women who aren't married, and so no holy kisses there. Maybe we do the side hug thing, whatever, I don't know. But let your mutual rescue and redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ be the foundation of your affection for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. May we as a church be so keenly aware of our rescue and our redemption with one another that by God's grace he would enlarge our hearts for one another in such a way that our affection for one another just oozes out of us such that manifests itself both in our speech and in our displays of affection for one another. And it becomes acutely obvious to the world that they love each other differently than the world does. And may that love and affection that we have for one another bind us together in such a way that we are made able and equipped to this task that God has given to us that Paul's laid out in this letter. And may we do that for the glory of God. It's not for us. It's for his glory. Let's pray.